Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Memories of Steve, by Don Melton at www.donmelton.com. Some of you might recognize Don as the leader, now retired, of the Safari and WebKit projects at Apple. A version of this article first appeared in The Loop magazine. This is the original, unexpurgated version, written during the summer of 2013, so adjust some temporal references as you read. I have no plans to watch that new movie about Steve Jobs, as I have no plans to read Walter Isaacson's biography of him. It's not because I think those efforts are somehow not worthy of his memory. It's just that I have my own recollections of the man, and I'm very jealous in guarding them. I don't want those few and fleeting memories fractured and confused by other people's interpretations. Consider that a fair warning, because I'd like to recount a few of my own stories about Steve here, not only for you, but for myself, because maybe in the process I can remember him better. Let me be up front. I did not know Steve well, but I had the opportunity to be around him on occasion, mostly during design reviews of applications for which I was responsible. There were certainly other meetings, but I never visited his home and very rarely spent time with him unless others were part of the conversation, and I was certainly not some kind of confidant. In fact, he probably always thought of me as the safari guy, which is fine by me since there were worse ways for Steve Jobs to think of you. Of course, Steve could recall my real name, too. Anyone at Apple or Pixar, both large organizations, will tell you that Steve knowing your name was an honor but also, occasionally, a terrifying responsibility. That was the bargain. I was privileged to work at Apple during its renaissance. I thank Scott Forstall for that, for hiring me, and for introducing me to Steve. But the first time I met Steve Jobs, actually just saw him in person, wasn't at Apple. It was at the developer rollout of the original Next computer and its software, NextStep software which would eventually become Mac OS X. This was an all-day conference. I forget exactly where, probably during 1988. Steve was supposed to address us potential Next developers at lunch. When the noon hour rolled around, I remember being very hungry and wanting to quickly find a quiet place in the oddly-shaped dining hall to eat my meal. I picked what I thought would be a remote table, Turns out it was right next to where a lectern would soon be placed, followed shortly by the honored speaker. Steve walked out from some side door and up to the podium, close enough for me to stand up, walk two steps, and shake his hand. Not that I was stupid enough to try that. He was dressed in a suit. Apparently he did that a lot in those days before he rediscovered jeans. Very professional looking. Almost too serious matching the intensity of his bearing and gaze. Obviously, Steve intended to tell us something very important. And we were all still eating. Some of us hadn't even started. It was an ungrateful din of crackling sandwich paper, clanging forks, slurping straws, and gnashing teeth. Obviously, he wanted us to quiet down. You could tell because he paused several times for us to hush ourselves. And out of respect... Awe, and probably some fear, we all tried our best to do so. But damn it, the room was now packed, and that many people just swallowing food makes a lot of noise. Sitting so close, I felt especially self-conscious. 
Who the hell scheduled him to speak at that time? Knucklehead? It's entirely possible that person was taken out later and shot. Anyway, I do remember Steve's seriousness and apparent impatience that day, but not a thing he said. After I started at Apple in June of 2001, I saw Steve at a few on-campus events, company meetings, walking between buildings and such. You could also sometimes see Steve in the company cafeteria, Cafe Max. He ate there just like the rest of us, often sitting with Johnny Ive. I'm not sure whether this incident happened just before or after Apple announced the original iPod, but it was a fine autumn day in Cupertino, and I was eating lunch with Ken Kashinda and Richard Williamson, the first two engineers on my safari team. We were sitting at a table just outside of one of the double doors to Cafe Max. I can't remember exactly what we were talking about. If we ever discussed the project, as we would sometimes refer to it when not in our offices, it was always in quiet tones and extremely obtuse language, since Safari was still double secret and known only to a handful. Anyway, while we were all munching on sandwiches and salads, Ken noticed a familiar face looking for an open table near the other end of the long patio curving around the front of the cafeteria. It was Bud Tribble. Among many other achievements, Bud was famous for running the original Macintosh software team and being a co-founder at Next, where Richard had worked years earlier. Bud had also hired me at the now-defunct Easel, which Ken and I had both worked just prior to joining Apple. Bud, in fact, helped me get the interview at Apple with Scott Forstall, so all three of us knew him well. Bud finally sat down with someone else, whose back was turned away from us, six or seven tables away. Ken said something like, Hey, that's Bud over there. Did you guys see him? What's he doing here? Ken and I hadn't seen Bud in months, not since Easel shut down, so we were all making guesses about the reason for his visit. Tiring of the conjecture, I finally just stood up, cupped my hands and called out to him. Hey, Bud, come over here and see your old pals when you're done talking to that guy. Bud looked up. Slight pause. And that guy turned around to stare at me. It was Steve Jobs. Of course. I will forever remember his look. A slightly lopsided and tight-lipped half-smile, eyebrows narrowed as if to say, I don't know who you are, but I won't forget that. Gulp. When I sat back down, at least I didn't say something smart-ass like, I am so fired in front of my two engineers, although that's what I thought at the time. Ken and Richard thought it was pretty funny once Steve turned back around. Until he did, though, I think they were holding their breath, too. Spoiler alert, I did not get fired. And about nine or ten months into the Safari project, Scott Forstall figured we should start preparing to review its features, user interface, and various behaviors with Steve. This would have been during the late spring of 2002. By that time, Safari was a for-real application which could actually browse the web. But it wasn't called Safari yet. That christening wouldn't happen until December later that year. Scott briefed me on what to expect and essentially how to behave during my first meeting with Steve and the subsequent reviews. And it was clear I would not be at a second meeting with Steve if I f***ed up during the first one. So I listened to Scott very carefully and took his most excellent advice. 
In retrospect, it should have been obvious, at least the general guidelines, but there were a few particulars I never would have thought of ahead of time. Let me be clear. Steve wasn't some mercurial ogre. It's Webster's, and I can turn off and on the thesaurus here. I'll leave it on. And uh, a word that's sometimes used to describe me is mercurial. <laughs> so I decided I'd look it up the other day. Relating to or born under the planet Mercury, I think the third one is the one they mean, uh, characterized by unpredictable changeableness of mood. Uh, if, we, uh, if we scroll down to the thesaurus, though, we see that uh, the antonym is satirine, and we go, well, what's that? Cold and steady in mood, slow to act or change, of a gloomy or surly disposition. I don't think Mercurial's so bad after all. <laughs> or cartoon autocrat, he was just very, very busy. He didn't have time for yes-men, the easily frightened, or those who didn't know what the f*** they were doing or talking about. In that way, he wasn't different from any other executive, at least those with good sense. Steve expected excellence, which is why he so often got it. He knew when something was right, but he didn't always tell you what he wanted when it wasn't, and he was very clear when he didn't like it. Some misinterpreted this behavior as being overly critical, but it was actually time-saving clarity, albeit uncomfortable on occasion. Design was an iterative process with Steve, which meant that it could take several sessions with him to complete that cycle. So patience was not just a virtue. When Steve asked you a question, you didn't ramble, and whatever you did, you didn't make up an answer. If you didn't know, you just said that you didn't know but then you told him when you would have an answer. Again, this was just good advice to anyone managing up, as they say. When demoing something to Steve, you had to pace yourself. If Steve said, stop, you stopped, hands down and waited, and you didn't jiggle the cursor while he was looking at the screen. Certain death. If he wanted to drive the demo machine, then by God, you let him drive. And if your software crashed, you didn't make excuses. You just made damn sure that particular scenario didn't happen again. Ever. Most of all, you remained calm. Because that was so easy. Oh yeah. Anyway, the other thing Scott warned me about was that Steve might test me, meaning that he might push me a bit to see what I would do. Sort of like a pitcher brushing back a batter with the high hard one. Fun. I don't actually remember much about that first meeting with Steve. Sorry, folks. Probably nothing to do with nervousness, I'm sure, but I was invited back, so I must not have screwed it up too badly, no doubt because not much actually happened. At one of those subsequent reviews, it might have been the second meeting, Steve did put me on the spot with a direct in-your-face question. In fact, I think it was the first thing he ever asked me. We were reviewing the bookmarks user interface in the yet-to-be-released Safari. At that time, all bookmarks were contained in a single, separate, modeless window. It was homely, but easy to implement. And Steve didn't like it, probably because he didn't want the complication of switching between windows. We started looking at how other Mac browsers did it. He didn't like those solutions either. So he turned directly to me, leaned forward with that laser-like focus of his, and asked, what would you do? Considering that what we just demoed was what I had done, or technically what my engineers had done, I was screwed. 
Everything else in the world seemed to fade away in a blur around Steve's face, and for a moment I couldn't think. But I didn't panic, or soil myself. After a beat, I said, I actually like what Internet Explorer for Windows does, with the bookmarks in the same window as the web content. I just don't like how it puts them in a sidebar. There's got to be a better solution than a sidebar, but I don't know what that is yet. And instead of being annoyed at my lame-ass answer, Steve said, show me what that looks like. Of course, he put me on the spot again because we didn't have any machine running Windows handy, which shouldn't be surprising, but I dodged another fastball by finding a screenshot online with Safari itself. Score! I was in the major leagues now. One great takeaway from working with Steve is that there's not much anyone can do to intimidate me now. So, bonus. After a few reviews with Steve, I was allowed to do the live application demos of Safari sitting right next to him. Normally, someone from the design team demoed screenshots, or non-code prototypes, in Macromedia Director, and many times they also demoed the real application. But Scott wanted me to demo the live code because he thought I would be able to avoid the fragile edges, and therefore, the crashes. Later, I initiated one of my engineers, John Sullivan, with this honor and doom. But in the beginning, it was me. Toward the end of summer in 2002, we were making progress with Safari's look and feel. While reviewing some of the affordances in the main Safari window again with Steve, we focused on the status bar. Steve didn't like the status bar and didn't see the need for it. Who looks at URLs when you hover your mouse over a link? He thought it was just too geeky. Fortunately, Scott and I convinced Steve to keep the status bar as an option, not visible by default. But that meant we had a new problem. Where should we put the progress bar to indicate how much of the page was left to load? Before, the progress bar lived inside the status bar, so we needed to find it a new home. We discussed all sorts of silly ideas, including making it vertical along the edge of the window. Remember, this was back in the day before the spinning gear, or other small affordances, were widely used to indicate progress. In the age of Barber Pole Blue Aqua, it had to be a bar. The room got quiet. Steve and I sat side by side in front of the demo machine, staring at Safari. Suddenly, we turned to each other and said at the same time, In, in the, the page, page address field. field! Smiles all around, which I followed with, I'll have a working version of that for you by the end of the week, overcommitting my engineering team, of course. But I didn't care. I had just invented something with the big guy. True, it was a trifle, but there's no feeling like sharing even a tiny byline with Steve. The irony of that invention is that years later, I tried to get that whole feature removed, because even when precision testing showed that Safari loaded pages faster than any other browser, that damn in-your-face progress bar made it seem slower to the user. Its wonderful visibility was killing our reputation. While we never did remove it, we finally changed the appearance and behavior of the progress bar, and that made me sad, even while it made me happy. Sometimes during those design review meetings, I got to see a glimpse of Steve that few were privileged to see. Once, a coworker in the room acted a little unfocused and bleary-eyed. So Steve paused the review to ask if he felt okay. That person apologized and responded that he'd been in the emergency room late into the night with his daughter after an accident at home. 
Steve, visibly concerned, asked if it would be better to do the review later. The fellow thanked him and said, no, we could proceed. Then Steve related a story about one of his own children who had a similar mishap a few weeks earlier and how much that had shaken him, too. He told the fellow he could take off early that day, after the review. Another time, Steve himself looked a bit bleary-eyed and apologized to all of us. He told us he'd been up all night. The family dog had passed away some time earlier, so Steve and his family adopted a new puppy. After a few days with that strain, his wife told him it was his turn to stay up minding the animal so she and the kids could get some sleep, which meant he had been sitting on the kitchen floor until morning with a cranky little dog trying to keep it quiet. Even he thought that was funny, a good thing because several of us were trying not to laugh. Yes, Steve could be intense at times, but he was also a real person. He had to deal with the ordinary and mundane aspects of life like everyone else. Maybe he even enjoyed them. I've written before about being at the 2003 Macworld keynote rehearsals, the event where Safari was unveiled, also where Steve gave the first update on our new Apple retail stores, at the time open less than a year. Many technology and business pundits had already written off our retail effort, claiming it would be a huge failure. Yet another dumbass prediction about Apple. Next up, Apple retail stores. And we now have 51 stores all across America. And now, 85 million people in America are, live within 15 miles of an Apple store. But even more gratifying, in our retail stores, 50% of the computers we sell are to Windows switchers. So, <clears throat> our mission was to go after the other 95% of the people that don't own a Mac, put our stores in high traffic locations and ambush them. And it's working. <laughs> I'm just gonna take last month, the month of December. How many people visited our 51 stores in the month of December? 1.4 million people. Now, just to put that in perspective, that's equivalent to 20 Macworlds last month alone. That's what these stores are doing for us. So, that's the update on Apple retail stores. We could not be happier. And I hope that we've won over some of the critics who, when we opened our first store, said we would most certainly fail. In fact, the stores had succeeded better than we expected, and Steve wanted to make damn sure everyone knew that, especially the pundits. During the two days of rehearsals, I sat about three or four rows away from the stage in the nearby empty presentation hall with Ken Kashinda. With the brightly lit stage in a dark hall, Ken and I were just visible enough for Steve or the support staff to see us if we were needed to troubleshoot the Safari demo. But most of the time, we had nothing to do except sit there and watch the master presenter practice his magic. Near the beginning of the first day, Steve asked, Is Phil here yet? Meaning Phil Schiller, our head of marketing. After a quick look around, somebody reported that he hadn't arrived yet. Steve explained to all of us that he was planning a little prank. We would see it first, and we had better not say anything about it when Phil arrived later. He then queued up the slides with the Apple Store update and inserted an extra special slide right at the end. It was epic. Laughter all around while we stared at the slide for a minute, a few moments to calm ourselves, and then the keynote was reset to the beginning, 
Great timing, because that's when Phil walked into the hall. So Steve started the rehearsal, going through the slides on the Switcher ad campaign, and then the Apple stores. At the end of the retail update, he was supposed to conclude with something like 1.4 million visitors in the month of December alone, but he added, So to all of you in the press who doubted us, and then clicked to reveal his special slide. Poster art I'm sure everyone has seen, a 1940s-style rendering of a grinning man holding a big mug of coffee next to his face with this text alongside like a word balloon. How about a nice big cup of shut the f*** up? And then the best part, the part we didn't know was coming, Steve paused, turned to his VP of marketing, and deadpanned, What do you think, Phil? Too much? Ken and I struggled to keep from collapsing in another giggling fit and falling on the floor. That Steve made such an effort to punk Phil not only meant he had a wonderful sense of mischief, but it was clear he thought well enough of Phil to know the man could take the joke, which Phil did after a few moments of what I assume was panic. Steve didn't always wear blue jeans and a black turtleneck. Sometime during my early years at Apple, I spoke with a veteran engineer in his first-floor office. He had his back to a window, so I had a good view of the big path outside which led to Cafe Max. While looking out that window, I became distracted, trying to figure out who was walking along that path with Johnny Ive. The hand gestures seemed familiar, but wait, what the hell? I pointed at who I saw out the window. My host turned around, looked and said, Yeah, that's how we know it's really summer. Steve is wearing short pants. And, apparently, a short-sleeved, almost tropical shirt with actual buttons. Seriously, I didn't recognize him at first. There were always a few strangely dressed folks around campus, including one fellow who regularly wore a plaid kilt. And I'm not even sure that guy was Scottish. At least Steve looked like he was cool, even if that wasn't a particularly cool look for him. He did have a better tan than most of the rest of us geeks. In my later years at Apple, I probably saw Steve less often than the early days of Safari development, partly by circumstance and partly by my choice. I had fewer new applications to review with him, and often when I did, I tried to get someone on my staff to do the demo instead of myself. This made for less crowded reviews, and it gave other folks experience dealing with Steve. I didn't want to hog all the glory, or all the doom. Once, there was a longer-than-usual stretch of time where I hadn't been in a meeting with Steve. In fact, during that period, I didn't recall seeing him in the cafeteria or walking around campus either. And then I was called to participate in a design review with Steve. When I walked into the meeting room, I was shaken. Steve looked thin and haggard, with an unhealthy color like someone's grandfather. Just as unsettling was his demeanor. He seemed tired and without his usual focus. We all knew Steve was sick. He had told us about the cancer. But until that time, I didn't realize how much it had ravaged him. I don't even remember the subject of that design review. When it was over, I left quickly and headed toward my office. Realizing that what I saw had bothered me so intensely, I stopped at Darren Adler's office rather than my own. I needed to talk to someone about it. As a manager, you should never share such things with someone who reports to you. But I had known Darren for years and trusted him not to freak out. And he didn't. 
But at the end of the day, there wasn't much for either of us to do except hope for the best and prepare for the worst and get back to work. Which is why, months later, I was actually relieved to hear that Steve would be getting a liver transplant. That idea scared a lot of folks, but I thought it felt hopeful. I would like to pass on some words from Steve. As you know, uh, Steve loves coming to Paris and wishes he could be here. And he asked me to pass along that while he can't be here, I think you all know he's at home recuperating from his successful surgery. And many of us have had a chance to meet with him and, and check up on him, and he's doing great. And he's, and he's really, really coming along well. And as you know, he'll be back at work in September. And September can't come soon enough. Yes. I'm very happy to be here today with you all. As some of you may know, about five months ago, I had a liver transplant. So I now have the liver of a mid-20s person who died in a car crash and was generous enough to donate their organs. And I wouldn't be here without such generosity. I hope all of us can be as generous and elect to become organ donors. I'd like to take a moment and thank everybody in the Apple community for the heartfelt support I got, too. It really meant a lot. When he returned from the operation, he still didn't look like the Steve of old, but he looked much better than the last time. So much better that many of us hoped he would be with us for quite a while. The last time I saw Steve, we talked about Safari. This was earlier in the summer of 2011, before he resigned. Steve had been on another medical leave since January of that year. Getting thinner and weaker again, he still came into the office to do what he loved. At a design review of a new Safari feature, the subject of the Windows version came up. Steve wanted to know what we could do to make it better and more competitive. By this time, I felt pretty relaxed being around Steve. So relaxed that I decided, what the hell, I'll just be blunt. Besides getting more folks at Apple to support development of Windows components the application depended on, I told him this wasn't an engineering problem. I really needed advertising and that Safari for Windows couldn't compete with Chrome when Google put a download button for it on their homepage and spent big on television, print, and web views. Scott Forstall, also in the room, backed me up on this. Another reason Scott made a great boss. Darren Adler, now running Safari and WebKit for me, had the presence of mind to add that the need for promotion wasn't just a Windows Safari problem. Mac Safari would benefit from it too. We were all huddled in the little design review room, some of us in chairs. I sat directly across, and just a few feet from, Steve. He seemed to be thinking about the problem and the proposal for some time. He was actually considering this, and that was heartening. After all, Steve was famous for changing his mind. But in the end, he said no. While not harsh about the decision at all, he didn't really elaborate on the response. I assume his reason was focus. And you know, the hardest thing is, you, when you think about focusing, right, you think, well, focusing is, is saying yes, no. Focusing is about saying no. Focusing is about saying no. And you've got to say no, 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 no. And when you say no, you piss off people. And they go talk to the San Jose Mercury, and they write a shitty article about you, <laughs> you know? By then, we had focused on iOS, iPhones, and iPads. I don't even think we advertised Macs or OS X on television at that time. 
I wasn't thrilled, but I could understand. And when you can get the time for thoughtful reflection on your idea from a visionary like Steve, well, that's a good day. A few months later, I was homesick in bed with the flu, a little out of it due to medication and not at all aware of the news. It's not like all of us didn't expect it, but it surprised me when Scott called to tell me that Steve had died, a courtesy that I've always greatly appreciated because I know how difficult it must have been to talk then. And it seemed better that Steve passed away at home with his family around him, because that's how a good man goes. After I called my staff and made sure they were aware, and they were okay, I told them to let any of their team members leave for the day if they thought that was best. Most of them stayed anyway because they didn't want to be alone. Then I laid back down, alone, and selfishly realized how fortunate I had been to have known this man, if just for a little while. There's a delightful interview with Don Melton about how he stumbled upon computers and then into the Macintosh on the Debug Podcast, Episode 11. See the show notes for the link. I thought, well, computer graphics, that's the way of the future. So I borrowed this enormous amount of money from my dad, and I bought an Apple II. I had it for a week, and then I realized I had made the biggest mistake of my life. I didn't want to go back to my dad. Remember that five grand you lent me? Whoops. Scott Forstall. So we did an interview with him, and they, you know, I had to sign a non-disclosure. He's asking me questions, kind of probing. If, you know, we wanted to do this, how would you? And I'm like, uh, do you want me to do a web browser? He was like, hold that thought. Runs out of the room, gets his admin. They bring in another NDA, signing, witnessing the NDA. So we watch her leave the room, shut the door. Scott turns to me and says, yes. I don't have any personal memories of Steve to share with you, but I often lament what we lost when we lost Steve. Showmanship a sense of humor in keynotes, and a CEO who wasn't afraid to talk tech and whose reality distortion field was brilliant at shifting your perspective just that little bit. You could say, we only buy top-quality LCD panels for our monitors, but you could also say, our competitors buy the panels we reject. <laughs> it's true. As even Bill Gates attested, Steve's incredible sense of design Taste and decisiveness made him a great editor of ideas, however brutal. Steve gave a speech once, which is one of my favorites, where he talked about, in, in a certain sense, we build the products that we want to use ourselves. You know, so he's really pursued that with incredible taste and elegance that has had a, a huge impact on the industry. Oh, I'd give a lot to have Steve's taste. Uh, <laughs> He has natural, uh, not a joke at all. I, I think in terms of intuitive taste, both for people and products. This was a CEO who wasn't afraid to demo his own products live on stage. That takes guts. When was the last time you saw Tim Cook so much as hold up a MacBook Air on stage? Guy Kawasaki. It's a perfect match because he's a showman who can really introduce a product, and he has great products to introduce. You can be a great showman and have a piece of crap and fail. You could also have a great product and be a lousy show person and also fail. He's both. What we found a long time ago was the line of code that a developer can write the fastest, the line of code that a developer can maintain the cheapest, and the line of code that never breaks for the user is the line of code the developer never had to write. <laughs> so we have the most powerful notebooks in the world, but they have the sex, right? We want both. 
We want both. Our relationship with Microsoft is kind of like a marriage. It's terrific about 99% of the time. About 99% of the conversations we have are about making great products for Macintosh customers. And about 1% of the time we argue over stuff, usually having to do with multimedia. <coughs> you know, in life, that's not a bad ratio. That's not a bad ratio. If you want to burn a CD on most computers, you've got to run really bizarre utilities, these toast things and this and that. It's very strange. So I want to show you what we've come up with for Mac OS 9, and of course the same thing will be in Mac OS 10 to actually burn a CD. And I click on it, and I get a folder, just like a regular old folder. And if I want to burn something in it, I just drag a file or two or whatever I want in it. Right? We, we very much appreciate the applause, but you shouldn't be applauding, because this is how it ought to work. Right. But there's one other thing. You see, design, we don't think design is just how it looks. We think design is how it works, because our pro customers want accessibility. They want access to that technology instantly, to add memory, to add cards, to add drives. And so we think we've got the most incredible access story in the business. And you know what it's called? It's called a door. <laughs> we just open this thing here, and there it is. <laughs> The back of these displays looks better than the front of most of our competitors. And, and I think when you get a chance to see one, you're just, it blows your mind. Yeah, first time I saw one of these, I couldn't talk for the first minute. So. In a continuing effort to express our appreciation to you guys, we're going to give away 50 of these new power books. I get the honor to give away the first one. And the winner of the first power book is... Oh, Steve Jobs. No. <laughs> Michael Dell said some disparaging things about us lately, <laughs> publicly. We're not going to engage in that sort of thing, but let me show you their product. This is their consumer notebook. It looks like this, and you can just sort of see it's about that thick, and it's got some nice fans in the back, so you can keep an eye on them. Stephen, one of the hot new buzzwords that we're hearing in a lot of different industries is convergence. I'm interested in finding out what you make of this term, what you see is convergence in the future. You know, I converged myself last week, actually. Can you tell? <laughs> uh, I don't know what it means. Here's what it means. What it means is your television's going to make toast. You know? That's what it means. So, I don't know what these people... Look, what is the most successful consumer product in the last 10 years? Microwave, I heard that, what else? What's that? Cell phone. VCR, no, you're all wrong. Thank you for playing. It is. It's a PC. Okay, and here's all these PC companies running around looking for a consumer product when that's what they make, right? Now, Dell doesn't, they sell in the corporate America mostly, but some other people do. Compaq does, Hewlett Packard does, Packard Bell does, of course Apple does. Uh, it's the most successful consumer product of the last 10 years. So, naturally, we want to combine it with the television. <laughs> People go to their television primarily to turn their brain off. 
You know, I used to think, like many of you might have thought, that, um, that, that there was this giant conspiracy of the networks to put mediocrity on television and dumb us down, right? Did you ever think that? I thought that. I thought it was a giant conspiracy to rob the American uh, populace of their, their mind, if not their soul. But I, I then found out the truth, which is far more depressing. <laughs> which is, the networks give people precisely what they want. That they come home from a long day, have dinner with their kids, and they're fighting, and they get them to bed, and they just want to turn on the television and turn their brain off for half an hour, right? Do you ever do that? I mean, I must admit, I don't watch much TV, but I do that every once in a while. After a long, hard day, I will turn on the TV for half an hour, and it really does turn your brain off. And so people go to their TV to turn their brain off for the most part. People go to their PC to turn their brain on. So I just don't see it happening. Now, sure, everybody would like a better online TV guide. Okay. Sony should build in an internet-based online TV guide into their television sets. I grant you that. But is this digital convergence? So that's what I think about it. And, and, uh, and, and uh, so I, I, yeah, that's what I think about it. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about integrating television into computers with the Windows Media Center and just wondering what your thoughts are on you know, bringing TV to the Mac and DVR functionality. We're not going to go that direction. We're going to integrate toasters and computers. <laughs> <laughs> we think people want toast when they're working on this. I, I can never get mine in the right brown. Yeah. <laughs> we can have computer control, just get it exactly how you, we can put up pictures of toast and you pick the one that looks like what you want and it will come right out the side. <laughs> We think it's a much better idea. We can do an upsell for bagels. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But there's a trade-off there. Which yeah. we wanna... No. Please join me in welcoming Scott Forstall. Phil don't realize how funny he was. He, he and I would go to lunch at the cafeteria at Apple all the time. And he would insist on paying. And I was like, it's... It's like, you're paying me enough that I can afford the $8 lunch. <laughs> but he'd always like, if he got his food before, he'd wait at the line for me to get up there and he'd pay. And he'd made it so you could pay with your badge. So you'd come up there and you'd badge in and it would be directly withdrawn from your paycheck. And somehow I was like, why are you... I mean, like, really, like, go sit down. I'll be out there. I feel, I feel like an ass while you're sitting there waiting for me and I'm getting, you know, I feel like I can't get any long cooking food. And he said, no, 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 this is great. I only get paid a dollar a year. <laughs> I don't know who's paying every time I badge. <laughs> he was a multi-billionaire scamming Apple. <laughs> Some of us uh, over the last 15 years remember a whole lot of uh, varied uh, server initiatives on Apple's part, AUX and AIX version, um, Power Open, various pieces of hardware, most of which only lasted you know, a year or two. Uh, I wasn't here when Apple did a lot of those uh, earlier. I think there was really just one server exploration that they had. Uh, and and uh, you know, I look at that as a, a, a dream when, when you know, Apple was in a coma. Uh, so, <laughs> How many copies of iTunes are out there? 300 million copies of iTunes? Or more. And almost all of them are on Windows computers? Uh, statistically, yes. 
statistically, re in reality, in this, yeah. in this particular dimension, they're all on Windows computers, exactly. right? <laughs> We've got cards and letters from lots of people that say that iTunes is the, their favorite app on Windows. Actually, it's like giving you a glass of ice water to somebody in hell. <laughs> There's that, there's that humility. <laughs> there's that Steve Jobs humility. There were two places I was deciding between, uh, Next or Microsoft. I mean, my actual interview at Next was funny because I went in the morning, very first interview of the day, I'd been there 10 minutes. Steve barges into the interview room, grabs the guy that's interviewing, takes him out, and they have this very animated conversation in the hallway. And I sit there waiting. And then door opens, and Steve comes back in. That guy's not there. Uh, <laughs> that was not on my list of people <laughs> interviewing me. Uh, and he starts peppering me with all these questions. And I'm answering them, and I'm answering them. We actually kind of we clicked. 15 minutes later, he looks at me and says, I don't care what anyone says the rest of the day. We're giving you an offer. <laughs> Pretend you care in the interviews, though. <laughs> Uh, we're giving you an offer, and I know you're going to accept it. <laughs> like the whole mind melting. I think one of the, the things that really separates us from the high primates is that uh, we're tool builders. And I read a, uh, a study that measured the efficiency of locomotion for various species on the planet. The condor used the least energy to move a kilometer. And uh, humans came in. Uh, with a rather unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list. It was not, not uh, too proud of a showing for the crown of creation. So uh, that didn't look so good, but then somebody at Scientific American had the insight to test the efficiency of locomotion for a man on a bicycle. And a man on a bicycle, or a human on a bicycle, blew the condor away, completely off the top of the charts. And that's what a computer is to me. Uh, what a computer is to me is, it's the most remarkable tool that we've ever come up with. And it's the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds. There was one time, a meeting we had uh, at Apple, we were trying to price something. And he was arguing for this higher price. And I said, it's too high. And he's like, no, no, this is where people are going to pay this. I said, I have friends, I have relatives who have very little money. Like, this is too high. You're a billionaire. You don't understand. And he paused and looks at me and said, I'm a multi-billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> We have added a podcast studio to GarageBand. So let me go ahead and record something. Hi, I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors. <laughs> Featuring the hot... Now, I got this all timed out. You gotta let me do this here. Hi, I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors, featuring the hottest rumors about our favorite company. I have some pretty good sources inside Apple, and this is what I'm hearing. The next iPod will be huge, an eight-pounder with a 10-inch screen. Also, Apple's working with other companies to get iPods everywhere. Well, that's all for today. See you next week. Pretty cool, huh? We've set you up with our brand new Power Mac G3.
and I'm going to use the fastest Pro Compact one you can buy. Mm -hmm. It's got a Pentium 2 running at 450 megahertz. Lots of megahertz. 25 megabyte Photoshop file. Three, two, one, go. Phil, where are you there? I'm coming. Just takes a second. My God. There we go. Phil, Tracing wh pads. Where's your horse, Phil? It's coming. <laughs> All right, we're done on the Macintosh. <laughs> All right. That, Phil, that's hard to believe. Okay, well, let's run this again. Let's revert. You know, Photoshop reverts, as you know. Sure. Okay, you ready to go again? Not yet. Not it yet. It takes oh. me a, a little longer to revert. This is usually when I get coffee. Maybe it's telling you to revert back to a Macintosh. <laughs> okay. What happened at Apple, to be honest, over the years was the goal used to be to make the best computers in the world. And that was goal one. Goal two we got from Hewlett Packard actually, which was we have to make a profit. Because if we don't make a profit, we can't do goal one. So, yeah, we, I mean, we enjoyed making a profit, but the purpose of making a profit was so we could make the best computers in the world. Along the way somewhere, those two got reversed. The goal is to make a lot of money, and well, if we have to make some good computers, well, okay, we'll do that. Because we can make a lot of money doing that. And it's very subtle. It's very subtle at first, but it turns out it's everything. That one little subtle flip takes five years to see it, but that one little subtle flip in five years means everything. And um, so we've put those things in their proper order again. We believe in ease of use, always have. And we've done a lot of things on the physical side. You'll see us do even more on the software side. The whole ease of use revolution kind of stalled. And everybody's just doing what we did 10 years ago. Matter of fact, it's gotten more complicated because as the functionality's gotten more complex, we've just stuck warts on the side of what we had 10 years ago instead of rethinking everything. Dr. John Warnock, the chairman and CEO of Adobe. The wonderful thing about having Apple back is that this industry is no longer boring. Thank you, Steve. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. <laughs>